Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. All right, welcome back to Shoot Me Straight with Dave and Eddie. Uh, today's guest, uh, I've been excited for. Uh, he's a dear, dear friend of mine. I'm closer than a friend. He's family to us. Uh, Bernie Carrick. Um, just to give you a background of how we know each other, Bernie was instrumental um, in my trial. Uh, when I was going through all that, he, he became an advisor and then became just a very close family friend uh, during that whole time. And we've been real close ever since. Uh, but, you know, when Bernie came onto my team, it was late into uh, my whole deal and I, I'd already been locked up for about six months um did not know Bernie uh my wife was the one who brought him on she she ended up talking to him and uh I met him face to face I think when I was locked up in Balboa and I knew within the first five minutes I was like yeah this is the guy right here but I had no idea um just what a career you had until I came I went to your house and uh went to your office and saw everything that you had done, um, which is beyond, like, unbelievable. I mean, your career is is insane. Um, so, I mean, we can get into that. We, I know that would be like a five-hour podcast, uh, just talk about everything you've <laughs> yeah, done. You don't want to go there. <laughs> but if you want to breeze over real quick, just, you know, where you're from, and then you can hit the highlights of what you've done. Um, you know, you obviously – Police Commissioner of uh, New York during 9-11, which was, uh, you know, a big deal. Um, but that's not the only thing you've done. I think that's what you're you're recognized for the most, but that's that's just a uh, fraction of everything that you've done in your life. So welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, and then uh, we'll get going. So, uh, yeah, briefly on my background. Um, I've been, uh, I, I guess to sum it up, I've been... Uh, I was in the military police in the U.S. Army. And uh, when I got out, I became a cop. Went to narcotics in North Carolina. Became a correctional officer in New Jersey. Took over um, the SWAT team in New Jersey. Created the first SWAT team in the Passaic County Sheriff's Department in New Jersey. And in between that, between the time I got out of the service... And the time I worked in Passaic County, New Jersey, I worked for the King of Saudi Arabia for two and a half years from 1978 to 80. And then I went back from 1982 to 1984 working for the royal family. Wow. Um, left, uh, left Passaic County in 1986. I was the warden of the Passaic County Jail, one of the biggest jails in New Jersey, and I was 30 years old. So I had... I had a white shirt, I had a gold shield, I had stars, I had a car. I had all that shit that you want as a police executive. And I gave it up to become a New York City cop in 1986. So I went from the chief of department to a white shield cop in the NYPD. And uh, how, how come you did that? <clears throat> You know what? Uh, uh, from the time I was young, um, you know, I, I grew up. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, you've ever seen the movie Lean on Me um, oh, about yeah. Joe Clark and Eastside High. My grandma worked with him. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And uh, 
I was actually one of those 25 white kids that went to that high school. Um, there were about 1,700 kids. Uh, there were only about 25 white kids, and I was one of them. I quit high school um, in my third year of high school. I quit, and, uh, and I wanted to be a cop, but I didn't have a high school diploma. I went in the service. And from the time I got in the service and I was an MP, a military police officer, the entire time I was in, uh, you know, I read all these books and I watched all these movies about the NYPD. And it was sort of a lifelong dream. But I had an insane career up until the time I joined, right? I worked for the royal family of Saudi Arabia, I, you know, twice. Not once, but twice. And this is when, this is when nobody had a fucking clue what Saudi Arabia was. This is... 78 to 80, right? <laughs> I remember going home and telling my father, I'm going to Saudi Arabia. And he was sitting at the dining room table and he's like, Arabia? He goes, you know, I, I heard of Arabia. He said, Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> so I was thinking. There's a fucking movie, Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah. He said, I think it's hot. I think it's really hot there. He wasn't shitting, it's hot. But, you know, I wound up going. So finally, in, in 1986... I had taken the NYPD test, and, you know, my background investigator said, dude, this is it. You're hitting the age limit. So if you want to go to the PD, which I personally think you're out of your fucking mind, given where you're sitting, given, given the job you have, I think you're nuts. You're completely nuts to do this, my personal opinion. But if you're going to do it, now's the time. So in July of 1986... I walked into the Brooklyn Technical Institute in New York with 2,600 other guys and girls, raised my hand, took an oath, and became a New York City cop. I actually, I was working in Passaic County. I went to work that morning, dropped off my G car, took my personal car, ran to Brooklyn, got sworn in, came back, and fucking resigned. And that was the beginning of my PD career. So uh, I was in the PD for um, about a year and a half, two years, uh, working in, in Midtown South, Times Square. Uh, went to plain clothes. So when you, when you guys, you know, you're riding around New York City in Times Square and you see yellow cabs, um, I was in one of those yellow cabs as a cop. The plain clothes units, the anti-crime teams at the time, you'd have three cops in a car, in a, in a yellow cab. One driving, two in the back. The two guys in the back of the runners. And we worked in Midtown. So, you know, you're constantly, all you're doing is responding to hot jobs, right? Mm -hmm. Man with a gun, robbery in progress, shots fired, somebody got mugged. You know, the, the crazy thing about Times Square back in the 80s, it was a fucking war zone, right? You, I don't care if you were working a day tour, an afternoon tour, or a midnight tour. What, no matter what time of the day it was, your radio was going constantly, right? Man with a gun, robbery in progress, somebody got raped, somebody got pushed under a train, so, you know, 24 hours a day. That's what was going on. Uh, I did that for about two years. Got transferred to narcotics uh, as an undercover up in Harlem, Spanish Harlem. How, how come y'all rode in a, real quick, I have to, how come y'all rode in a yellow cab instead of a cop, just so the element of surprise? Like. Element of surprise. You know, you're like a chameleon. You blend into the, 
into the uh, community, no. right? I mean, it's not really a community. It's a fucking, it's a mass chaos, <laughs> you know, Espe- and especially back then. This is pre-Giuliani, right? This is when, you know, we were averaging the highest murder rate in the United States, 2,200 murders a year. So if you think about today's crime in Los Angeles, Chicago, Baltimore, and Atlanta, New York City had more homicides than all of them combined back in the 80s and early 90s, up until Giuliani. So um, I got transferred to narcotics. I was an undercover. Uh, You know, I wanted... I wanted a New York City detective shield, a gold shield, right? And the only way to get it, there's two ways to get it. You can become an investigator over time, takes you about five or six years, or you could fast track it. Fast tracking, um, basically you become an undercover in narcotics. It's a far more dangerous job. You don't make arrests. All you do is buy drugs, um, but you get your shield within a matter of 27 months. And... Um, so I went to I went to narcotics. I had hair. Well, I had hair. Period. Yeah, but I was about to say I had <laughs> I had hair down to the middle of my back. I had seven diamond earrings, and for two years I bought drugs up in Harlem, Spanish Harlem, Washington Heights. Um, I had a very active career. I was involved in a couple of shootings. Um, my partner was shot. I had a couple partners shot and killed. Um, and then, uh, then I went to DEA. I, I got transferred, elevated to the DEA task force, and that was in nineteen ninety. And uh, I oversaw one of the most substantial drug investigations in New York history. We took uh, we took over about a two and a half year period. We took about ten tons of cocaine off the streets. Tons. Tons. Whoa. We, we t- ten tons would uh, fill this room yeah. more than this room. Um. If I'm, I'm talking like floor to ceiling, yeah, um, ten tons, sixty million in cash, and uh, locked up a whole bunch of bad guys, including guys out of Colombia that we we actually snatched out of uh, Geneva, Switzerland. Wait a minute, that was one bust. It was a series of busts. In other words, we posed as importers, exporters. So we would go to the Colombians and say, "Look, you guys got a thousand keys in Bogota. You want to get it to New York? Okay." I'll meet you in Costa Rica, and we would go to fucking Costa Rica, you know, mow down a fucking banana field so they could land in the middle of the jungle. They'd land, drop the thousand keys, we take it, deliver it to New York, and then deliver it to them in New York City. The problem is they never got the drugs. And and the way that works is we would set up a delivery point, and I'll give you one for example. They gave us a van one time to put the... 800 keys, came, I think it came out of Jeez. Guatemala or Costa Rica. We had the dope. It was in New York. They gave us a van. Um, <clears throat> when they gave us a van, we said, okay, we're going to load it tonight. We'll give it back to you in the morning. We changed the fucking ignition switch on the van. So when we gave them the van the next day with the 800 keys, they had a driver pick up the van in Midtown Manhattan. And he got up on, <laughs> he got up on the fucking Brooklyn Bridge, and he's going across the Brooklyn Bridge. And the fucking van shuts off. And he's like, he's doing all this shit, trying to get the fucking van started. We have a uniform car roll up. This is like in 1991, 92. Uniform car rolls up and says, dude, you got to move the truck. You know, what What happened? I, I, I don't know. 
you know, you want to go call somebody? Yeah, he'd go call somebody and he'd never come back. Mm-hmm. And then we would seize it. And then two or three days later, we'd find him in a fucking body bag on the West Side Highway. So we had a bunch of those. We had him coming out of Ecuador. We took 1,500 keys out of Ecuador. Jesus. It took uh, so much time. <laughs> so how do you have, like, being a, a New York cop, have the authority to go to other countries and be able to, to do all this? Because when you, get, when you get assigned to the DEA task force, that task force is run by the Drug Enforcement Administration, the feds. Mm-hmm. And you have New York City police detectives and New, uh, New York State police that are sworn, deputized by the DEA. So you become a federal agent. Okay. It's like Joe. It's like my son. My son is a detective with the Newark Police Department. He's a team leader on the Newark Police Department SWAT team, but he actually is assigned to the FBI Joint Terrorist Task Force. So he's sworn in by the feds as a federal agent. And that's how that's how you operate. Yeah. And that gave us the authority. You know, you know, you talk about that. I remember one of the first loads we were doing a load, I think out of Guatemala, and I called the country attache and I said, Hey dude, I'm picking up eight hundred keys. I'm out of New York. I'm a New York City detective. We're picking up eight hundred keys. I need a deuce and a half and a bunch of guns and here's where we're going. He goes, who the fuck are you? Like, <laughs> what are you doing here? I said, no. I said, no, we're, we're, we're with the task force. He says, I didn't get a teletype. I don't even know who the fuck you are. I say, here's what I know. Here's the GPS coordinates. Here's where the fucking plane's going to land. And here's what we got to pick up. You got to do this. I'll get your fucking teletype or whatever you need. I'll f- figure out where that's coming from. Yeah. But right now, I'm in Guatemala City, dude. I need to do this. <laughs> So um, I did that for about, uh, I, actually for about four years, but right smack dab in the middle of my time at DEA, I met Rudy Giuliani, who was running for mayor. Uh, I met him at a couple different police events, and I started overseeing his personal security um, before he uh, became mayor, when he was running. And then all of a sudden in 1993, the fucker won the election. And, like, for the last year and a half, two years, I had been hanging out with the guy who was now the mayor. Yeah. And um, from that point on, you know, I was uh, I was working with the mayor. Well, I actually didn't want to leave the DEA. DEA was the best job I had, right? Uh. It's a federal gig. You got a federal car. You have expenses. You travel all over the world, all over the country, you know, dropping money, picking up dope, dropping off dope. We, it was a it was yeah, a fun it job. Sounds if, like a good time. It, you had a good time, right? Um, I didn't want to leave. Rudy wanted me to go to the intelligence division and work with you know for him. Um, and I basically said I'd rather stay where I am, or where I was. And, uh, and then, <laughs> he said no. Then, then all of a sudden, my lieutenant comes in one day and says, uh, "Hey, dude, congratulations! You've been transferred." I said, "What do you mean I've been transferred?" He said, you just got transferred to the intelligence division. I said, no, no, I, I don't want to go. He said, I don't fucking think you got a choice. Like, you've been transferred, gone. You're done. And that was the beginning of my time with the mayor. But it lasted literally four months. Huh. I was there four months. They had a riot at Rikers Island, a big riot. Rikers is the largest jail system in the country. 
Um, they average about 133,000 admissions per year. Um, they were averaging about 150 stabbings and slashings per month when, when this was going on. And Rudy knew that I had run a jail in New Jersey, Yeah, right? And all my boys was, and everybody that knew him that knew me would say, when fucking Carrick ran the county jail in New Jersey, he, he was no joke, right? He, he, was, he was a great administrator, didn't take no shit, no violence in the jail. So I get a call uh, to the mayor's house one night, and he said, listen, tomorrow morning, you're going to go, uh, you're going to go to Rikers, and um, you're going to help the commissioner, the new commissioner. Um, I, I said, yeah, but I, I, I don't want to go to Rikers. I, I, I left correction. <laughs> I left correction to take the, a, a job with the PD. Just go for six months, he says. I went for six months. Six months turned into actually six years. Wow. I started out as the executive assistant and chief of staff to the commissioner. Um, I left, uh, I, I got promoted by the mayor to first deputy. That's the number two guy in charge about six months later. I was in that position. Only six months later, wow. Six months. I was there for two years in that position. And uh, one afternoon, the commissioner come into my office. Now, I was the number two guy. The number one guy comes into my office. He says, dude, I got great news, and I think I got bad news. I said, why, what's up? He said, the great news is I'm fucking retiring. I said, wow, that's great. I said, what's, what's the bad news? He said, uh, you're getting the job. And I said, what do you mean I'm getting the job? I said, how do you know? He said, well, the mayor asked. He said, I went to see the mayor this morning. I told him I was uh, putting in my papers. And he says, uh, you know, is Bernie ready? And I, I said, yeah, of course he is. He, he does it already. He runs shit already. And I took over the department as commissioner. And uh, and I was there for another two years. Did you want that at the time? Did you want to be a commissioner? Look, every, everybody wants to be elevated. Um, it was I, I wasn't even thinking about it, you know. I was a fucking high school dropout from Patterson, New Jersey. Like, you know. Yeah, but you're from Patterson. So. No, no. <laughs> so you, you're not thinking about it, right? You, you never think you're going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I took over the agency. Now, from the time... I took over um, in 1994 to 2000 when I walked out the door. We had reduced violence in the jail system by 93%. Wow. I reduced 90, so 93%. How, so you, when you went and took over Rikers, yeah. what what was the framework? What did you do to like start reducing and pretty much well, the first thing smack you do, down? The, the first thing to do is like you have to understand when, when the shit was chaotic at Rikers, right? Fucking... Everybody carried weapons, everybody. Every inmate carried a blade, carried razors, you know. I can remember guys bringing, they'd bring an inmate into my office and they'd say, we have something to show you. I said, what? And a fucking dude would take a piece of dental floss, he'd have tied to his tooth, and he would take that dental floss and pull it off his tooth, and he would pull it like this, and he'd pull out six fucking razor blades that were tied to the dental floss that he had swallowed. The fucking, yeah, they're like razors out of your razor blade. So they would take those razors and they would melt them into a toothbrush. Into the, what what am I talking about? You've been there. (laughs) Scrape them into the the toothbrush. (laughs) Scrape them into the toothbrush, melt that shit. And then all you see is a toothbrush, right? They had all these weapons and they would go around cutting people, cutting officers, you know, 
gang jumping guys. Nobody did anything about it. And when the first the first major thing I had, they held a uh, two Spanish guys held a young black kid down on the ground, and they carved LK into his back with a fucking chicken bone or a turkey bone. I forget what it was. Yeah, they gave him like a hundred and something stitches. And I said to my guys, I said, okay, now what happened? What do we do with these guys? They said they went to punitive segregation, solitary. I said, I, I know, but wh- what do we do with them now? Is it nothing? I said, what are you talking about? I said, How, what do they get charged with criminally? Nothing. The Bronx DA is not going to charge them criminally. This is jail. That's what happens in jail. I said, no, no, no. <laughs> I said, no. It, here's the problem for me. If you took 10 <clears throat> steps outside of the jail, and I held that kid down on the ground, and I gave him 180 stitches, 10 steps outside the jail, Aggravated assault, attempted murder, possession of a deadly weapon. There'd be 15 fucking charges that you would charge them with. But because it happened in a facility, you don't charge them criminally? No, we're not having it. We're fucking charging them. If they commit a crime in the jail, we charge them. And that was the beginning. Mm. And overnight, we started seeing reductions. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, weapons possession and, you know, arson. A big one in jail, as you know. You know, they like the light motherfuckers yeah. on fire. You know, go, guy goes to sleep. They stick toilet paper in his fucking toes while he's sleeping. And then they light that shit on fire and he wakes up in chaos, right? Mm-hmm. You, If you wind up with any type of instrument where you could start a fire, we charge you with arson. Mm. So all that stuff that they had never done before, nobody had focused on, I started doing. And by the time I left, I the month I le- we we had when I took over we had 155 st- stabbings and slashings. The the month I took over that was our average. The month I became New York City Police Commissioner, we had one, and I was fucking pissed. We had one incident that month because you were holding them all accountable for their right. actions. Yeah, so that's that's just some of it, right? Um, and then in August of August of 2000. Um, the uh, the police commissioner, the NYPD. Now, now keep in mind, when you run the New York City jail system, I had 13,000 staff members. I had a billion-dollar budget, and I had 133,000 inmate admissions a year, right? Wow. It's a big job. Um, 13,000 staff members under you. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's about to get much worse. <laughs> um, and then in August of 2000, um, I got a phone call on a Friday evening. Mayor called me and said, listen, tomorrow morning, uh, 9 o'clock, you're going to be at City Hall. You're going to take over the NYPD as the police department's 40th police commissioner. So you don't answer. You know who the first New York City police commissioner was? No clue. Teddy Roosevelt. Wow. So what what happens when that happens? What happens is when you take over the NYPD, the mayor presents you with a gold shield, that shield. And this is a dupe of the actual shield that Roosevelt had, right? Because Roosevelt's shield was solid, 18 karat gold, had five platinum stars, was cast eyed by Tiffany's and another jewelry company. 
at the time, right? If I lose that, it probably costs about 40000 to replace it. If I fucking lose this, it costs about 70 bucks. So I carry this one instead. But you get one before you leave office. Um, so on August 19, 2000, on a Saturday morning, I was appointed the commissioner of the NYPD. Now, when you're thinking of numbers, uh, you know, you said 13,000 staff. In the NYPD, I had 55,000. I had 41,000 uniformed officers, and I had 14,000 civilians. Um, we were, uh, you know, we were right in the middle of Giuliani's term. Uh, crime was dropping, um, you know, over the next 18 months under my command, we had knocked crime down in total, um, about a 65% reduction in, um, violent crime, a 70% reduction in murder in the black community, uh, where the violent crime was, some of the violent crime was the highest. Yeah. The murder rates dropped to almost 80%. Dude, these numbers. Right. So let me ask you this then, like, obviously he had you come in as a police commissioner. He had already been in that seat for a little bit, right? So he's he'd been cleaning up, trying to yeah, clean he up had, the city. He had two PCs before me. Yeah. You know, Bill Bratton and Howard Safer. What, I was the third one. What was the same type of question with the with uh, Rikers? Like, what were the actions that he took to start cleaning up that city? Well, for the, the first thing he did, which you'll notice never happens today in cities like Los Angeles, Atlanta, Chicago, all these... Mm-hmm radically left-winged, you know, run cities, mm-hmm. um, it, they don't let their cops do their job. Yeah. Right? That's why I'm asking um, When we were there, uh, David Dinkins was the mayor before him. Um, when Giuliani came, came, uh, came on board, I was a cop. I was a detective. And I could remember the feeling, just the feeling, the gut feeling of somebody in City Hall saying, okay, here's the deal. You're going to go out and do your fucking job, the job you're sworn to do. You're going to go do it, and you're going to do it aggressively. If you fuck up, I'm going to support you unless I find out it's criminal. If I find out it's criminal, I'm going to fucking lock you up. I'll give you the benefit of the doubt, but go do your job. Yep. Then he went to the prosecutors and said, do your job or I cut your money. That's it. That's what started it, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, and and the other thing we did is we started policing like had never been done before, right? Uh, you know, if you look at the management systems of Home Depot and Walmart and things like that. The reason they've been so successful is because they monitor what goes on in their stores on a daily basis, almost an hourly basis. They can tell you what they're selling, how they're selling it, where they're selling it, who they're selling it to. Policing was never like that. We used to look at progress reports, right, uh, once once a quarter. Well, if you're looking at fucking crime statistics every three months, the crime trends <laughs> have changed four times by the time you actually look at them, right? Yeah. So in this case, Rudy says, I want to know what happened in New York City in the last 24 hours. So we had to create a set of performance indicators you know, everything from murder, robbery, you know, the, the most stringent of crimes, the, the felony crimes, right down to the basics. How many summonses were given out yesterday? Where were they given out yesterday? 
why is this spike in this location? If there's a spike here of robberies, what are we doing about that? How many cops have been moved into that area in the last 24 hours to address that spike? All these things, he was super aggressive at pushing. And slowly but surely, over the eight years he was in office, he had the most substantial reduction in violent crime and murder in the history of this country. Yeah. In the history of the country. Dude, I love that. Nobody has done it before him. Nobody's done it after him. Nobody has replicated it in any city in this country, not like he did. Well, it sounds like you took it like a business. I mean, in, that's exact that and that's exactly right. There's you know, there's a book there's a book that was written by David Osborne. It was called Reinventing Government. If you re- this is crazy because if you read that book and that's that's where a lot of his strategies came from, mm-hmm. and I got to know the strategies because I was fucking driving him and he would get out of the car and I would pick up the book and read through it. You know, what gets measured gets done. If you don't know what's bad, you can't fix it and make it good. If you know, I mean, simplistic stuff. Yeah, but this is the stuff that these big organizations run by. That's what they run by. In other cities and other states around the country have just never gotten up to speed to realize that it works. And then you have mayors and governors, these radical left-wing woke fuckers that will not let the cops go do their job or they target the cops instead of targeting mm-hmm. the bad, guy, bad guys. So, um, you know, I did that for, uh, for you know, two years uh, under Rudy's term. Um, everything was great. Everything was going smooth. It was a, a, you know, a great job, a phenomenal, just, you know, somebody asked me one time, they said, what's it like being the police commissioner of the NYPD? And I said, it's like being fucking anointed king, mm. right? Because you're in charge of the entire city. Who do, who do you report to as the commissioner? Only the to the mayor? Only to the mayor. Wow. So for me, that made it much easier, right? You know, I have a bunch of fucking sissies in the middle you know, well, I don't know, I'm not sure, who knows, maybe, I don't know, none of that yeah. shit. And with him, it was fucking, go do this, you know, and he's a no-nonsense guy, go do this, if you do it, you'll do well, you'll get promoted, if you don't do it, you get fired. Yeah. Okay, all right. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. <laughs> so uh, everything was going smooth until uh, until 8.46 on the morning of September 11th. Uh, when the first plane hit Tower 1, I was in my office uh, and was notified that there was an accident. Um, by the time the second plane hit Tower 2, I was actually standing in front of the building. When the second airliner flies through the north side of the tower, I'm standing in front of it, looking straight up in the air, thinking, what the fuck is that? Because I didn't see the plane. The plane came from the southern end of Manhattan and blew out the north side of the tower where we were standing. Over the next 24 hours, we realized uh, we, I, lost 23 people that worked for me. Um, We lost 343 firefighters. Um, We lost uh, 37 Port Authority cops and 1,700, 1,800 civilians uh, in the most substantial terror attack in world history. And um, Rudy and I, you know, took the city through that um, until we both left office on January 1st, 2002. And we retired. Yeah. I I have to ask about this. <laughs> I yeah. have to dive into dude. This 
it, it's so significant. I mean, just to even to me, right? And like for you that day, you're standing in front of the tower. You said, you know, eight forty six. Is that the time? That's the first plane, yeah. And then you're standing in front of uh, the trade centers when the second plane hits. Like, what was your, what was your day like, that whole day like? That sequence of it. I mean, was it just basically they rush you somewhere? Or? Yeah, at the. Um, <laughs> We actually, when the second plane hit Tower 2, I was standing in front of that building. So my security team um, actually drug me out of there. We, we drug me north. Give me a fucking wedgie, you know, dragging me up the block, <laughs> trying to get out of the way. Giuliani got down there about three minutes later. And we walked down to West Street. We met with um, four, three of the highest members of the fire department, the first deputy commissioner, chief of operations, and the chief of department for the fire department for the city of New York, met with them, talked to them at their command center, and we went back to 75 Barclay Street. There was an office there. Um, took the mayor inside so he could call the White House. He wanted to make sure that we were going to get air support, wanted to close down the airspace, that, that, shit like that. And as we were in that office, the mayor was on the phone with the White House. They said, the president's not here. We later learned he was in Florida. Um, they said, but the vice president's going to come to the line. And uh, and as he was sitting there, he looked at me, hung up the phone. He said, shit, that's not good. I said, what? He said, they just said that they think the Pentagon got hit, and they're evacuating the White House. And as he said White House, the fucking building that we're standing in, which is two blocks north of Tower 2, starts to go like this. It felt like a fucking freight train was coming through the side of the building. And the tower was collapsing. Uh, tower 2 was collapsing. Mm. And uh, and it basically fell on top of us. So we were trapped inside 75 Barclay Street for about 25 or 30 minutes. Couldn't get out. Finally found our way out. <laughs> it was crazy. These two fucking... Two little Spanish maintenance guys like opened a door out of nowhere. Like some, some door looked like a closet. The door opens and they're standing there. It's the mayor, the police commissioner, the fire commissioner. It's he's, he's like, they're looking at us. And I said, Hey dude, you got, you got keys for these doors to get over to church street. He said, yes, sir. I said, all right, start opening the doors. And we, it was like a maze. We got out of that office and made it over to church street. Um, and took off. I I got the I took the mayor actually to the New York City Police Academy, up in Gramercy Park and uh, on Twentieth Street. I I wanted to get him out of the danger zone. Number one, number two, I wanted to put him in a place where I I didn't know we didn't know what else was coming. Yeah, what were you thinking? Were you I, thinking? <clears throat> I mean, did they literally plan, did as... they plan ground attacks? Um, were, were they gonna you know throw sarin gas into the mass transit system? Um, what else was planned? We, we had no idea. Um, so the objective was to get the mayor in a safe zone where he could oversee the city and do what he had to do. The crazy thing is those guys in the fire department I told you about, the top three guys, we met with them. We went back to 75 Barkley. When that building came down, every one of those guys died. So had we stayed there 10 or 15 minutes longer, um, 10 minutes probably, uh, the mayor and I would have been killed. Damn. Um, and then I retired. Uh, I, I left office on January 1st. 
And I left public service, or at least I thought I did at the time. Uh, I left public service. Um, the mayor and I had a company together, a consulting group, and in May of 2003, I'm going to cut this short because this yeah. shit could go on for fucking ever. I know. Um, May of 2003, April of 2003, I should say, um, probably early April, uh, I get a call from the White House to go meet uh, Secretary Rumsfeld. And uh, within two and a half weeks after I met him, I was dispatched to Iraq uh, to take over the Ministry of Interior. So I became the interim Minister of Interior for Iraq um, as these guys were getting into Baghdad. Um, I was there for four months until they appointed the actual Iraqi, uh, came home, back to my consulting business. In December 2004, President Bush uh, called me to the White House, and I was nominated to take over the um, Department of Homeland Security as a secretary. I would have been the se second secretary of Homeland Security. Um, I accepted the nomination, mm. all the hoopla that went with it, and uh, seven days from the day I accepted, I accepted the nomination on a Friday. The following Friday, I declined and withdrew my name from consideration because I had a fucking nanny, a domestic servant, uh, that I had paid cash to for a two-year period, didn't pay payroll tax, and um, and I had to withdraw. And uh, that's because well, they came <laughs> after you because they knew. Right? Well, they 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 started to come after me initially. Yeah. You know, I paid the tax, I paid the fine, I had Ernst and Young go through my taxes. I did everything I was supposed to do. I apologized to the president. You know. What, what was insane for me was I was being, you know, lambasted for having a, a domestic servant, a nanny, that I paid cash to. And at the same time, Timothy Geithner was being confirmed as the Treasury Secretary, and he had the same fucking problem I did. I'm watching his congressional hearings, and he's talking about what a mistake he made, and yes, I apologize, I'm being criminally prosecuted for the same fucking thing, which is kind of Because you paid cash to your nanny instead of putting them on payroll? Yeah, yeah. Are you serious? So I, I took care of all of that when I declined, and everything was done. I was all done. Um, that was in December of uh, December of 04. Over the next year, um, there were a couple of investigations, and all of a sudden, um, you know... <laughs> Fucking Giuliani announced he was running for president. And as soon as he announced, it wasn't, he didn't even announce he was running. He was considering running. He was going to start a pack and consider to run for president. Um, the feds started subpoenaing all my business records, my nanny records, all that shit. And then over the next year and a half, uh, I was under federal investigation. I was hit with a 16-count indictment eight counts of which was my fucking nanny, which I had already paid the tax and the fines and the penalties. Yeah. Um, and I got hit with this indictment. Uh, I was going to trial. Um, I was going to fight the charges. Um, but my my bills, my legal bills, were about a hundred to 150000 a month. Um, and I just, I couldn't afford it. 
and uh, in September, October of 09, um, well, it's, I know, it's October of 09. I know that for a fact because my fucking legal bill for October of 2009 for one month, 30 days, was $465,000 for a month. You know, my, bro- my brother comes over to my house, walks in my office, and he goes, dude, I'm so disappointed you took this plea. Like, why didn't you go to trial? I said, here, dude. I took the fucking stack of legal bills, which at that point was about two and a half million. I said, here, take it. You pay it. Yeah. Get somebody to pay it. And I'll fucking, I'll, you know, whatever. You know? And, and like, everybody felt the same way. My brother, my, my son, my everybody. You I'm know, sure, they were yeah. like, why aren't you fighting? You shouldn't, you need to fight this. You know what? The reality is, and, he, and here's a reality for anybody that goes through this. Oh, I know what you're going to say. You do not have the constitutional rights you think you have unless you have the money to pay for them, which is exactly why this guy, Eddie, um, people should give him a lot of fucking credit for what he's doing with the Pipe Hitter Foundation. You have no idea how important that is to people that get lambasted by the fucking government. Oh, yeah. You have no idea. So I went through that process. I pled guilty. I was supposed to get, uh, I, I agreed to 27 to 33 months in federal prison. And, um, and I had a judge that was um, besties with uh, Hillary Clinton, Chuck Schumer, and the whole fucking crowd. And instead of taking my background, everything I just told you, every, all the shit that I've told you, you know, the, you know, 30 medals in the NYPD, knighted by the Queen of England, knighted by the Duke of Calabria, you know, the uh, medals of honor, you name it. None of it mattered. The judge gave me 48 months. <laughs> so he gave me 48 months, and I went to federal prison. And, uh, and I learned things about the fucking criminal justice system that I never knew. Um. Which is exactly how we met. Yep. Because what what Eddie was going through, I didn't know Eddie. I didn't know him. I didn't know anything about him, his family. I read an article about his case, and I thought, this makes no fucking sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we train these guys to go over and kill the enemy. Yes. And then he goes over and kills the enemy, <laughs> and now we're going to fucking kill him, put him in prison until the day he dies. It makes no sense. There's got to be something to it. So what I did, you know, I've got a, a shitload of friends in the special operations community. You know, I know many of them because they defended us in New York City. You know, the guys that killed bin Laden. I know a shit ton of guys in his community. And I started calling guys up and saying, "What? am I missing something yeah. with this Gallagher case? What am I missing? And they said, no, dude, it's the, it's the fucking government. It's, you know, Warcom. It's, you know, they're just... They're going to make an example out of him. So I wrote an article, and I fucking I hammered him in, in an article that went national, went public, and, and viral. And, uh, and Andrea and his brother called me and said, you know, do you have any suggestions? And then I started talking to Andrea on a daily basis. And at some point, and I don't remember exactly when it was, but she would, she would tell me what they're doing and what's going on and what the attorneys are doing. And one day I called her up and I said, listen, uh, and now I had known her for about six weeks. I was talking to her almost every day. And I said, listen, I I said, I have something to tell you. 
You're going to be upset, but just take my word for it because I've done this a long time. I said, your lawyers suck. Mm. <laughs> they suck. Yeah. I said, this fucking guy is in solitary confinement. They don't have the justification to keep him there, and your guys haven't put in a fucking motion to get him out of there. Like, how, how is that possible? And I was going nuts. So I said, listen, I'm going to call a friend of mine, and I'm going to talk to him. And just to make sure I'm clear on, on my thinking and what I'm thinking, and I called, uh, I called an attorney, a, a very close personal friend of mine, Tim Polator, who's my own attorney. I called him, and he told me exactly what I was thinking. He said the same thing. So I put him on the phone with Andrea, and, uh, and Andrea called me in tears. She said, how do we, is there a way to get that guy to help us? I talked to Tim. I got Tim on board. And, uh, and, you know, Tim was going to take the number two spot in the legal team, get rid of the number one guy. And um, yeah. And then within a week, within a week and a half, two weeks. It was, yeah, we know. got rid of the whole team. So I, at this point, I was locked up. And, you know, Andrew was on the outside just working her magic, you know, getting everything out there. And then she was telling me when I would talk to her on the prison phone, like, hey, I'm talking to this guy, Bernie. And I was like, I, I don't, okay. I'm like. <laughs> What's, what's he say, you know, and she's, you know, oh, he's giving me some advice and this and that. And what was funny is early on, I wanted to fire my lawyers right off the bat. I was like, these dudes, I went to court with them the first couple times. I'm like, I'm not a lawyer, but I can tell when people are fucked up. And like, this is not what I expected. But because I was locked up and then they were telling Andrea, oh, he's just stressed out. He's just, you know, right. he doesn't know what he's talking about. It went on like that for a while until Bernie stepped in. And then I think Andrew was, you know, like, all right, these guys are horrible. We need to get rid of them. So I ended up firing Colby Vokey, who was the lead lawyer. I was like, hey, man, you got it. And it wasn't like a dick move. I was just like, bro, you're not doing the job. Right. You're gone. I kept on the Bill Stackhouse. I made him lead, brought Tim in, yep. which was a – it was a controversial decision I did because Andrew's like, why are you keeping I, – I kept Phil on for continuity. I was well, like, we needed – yeah, yeah, we needed it. And I wanted to time. see where he was going to go. Right. And I'll tell you what, Phil had been on my case at that point for about eight months. They were <laughs> – Phil and Tim were in my room discussing the case, and Tim was on it for about two weeks at that point. Tim knew more about my case than Phil did. I mean – and he'd only been doing it for two weeks. Phil didn't even know, like, the names of the witnesses. Yeah. And I'm just like, you know what, man? You're taking second lead. Tim, you're first. And then Phil quit. He was like, oh, you know, babied it out. But So while while this is going on, while, he, while we're going through this thing, a Saturday, it was a Saturday morning, Andrea's on, on Fox, and I get a phone call from Mark Mukasey. <laughs> Mark Mukasey is the son of the former attorney general, Michael Mukasey. He was the attorney general under Bush. Phenomenal lawyer, New York City lawyer, big criminal defense guy, was the chief of the, uh, the criminal division for the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York. He calls me up and he says, hey, dude, I, I have to tell you, did you, you ever see this thing about this guy Gallagher? He goes, I was watching Fox this morning. He said, it's fucking terrible what they did to this guy. And I, I thought he was fucking with me, right? I thought he, I thought he knew like what I was doing. I said, yeah, I, I know I know them. I said, I'm helping the family. He goes, are you serious? I said, yeah. He said, you tell them whatever they need 
uh, you know, I'll help them. And I said, dude, you work for the fucking president in the United States. I think you're a little busy. He said, listen, I'm telling you now. He said, if it doesn't interfere with POTUS, as long as it doesn't ever interfere with something I'm doing for him, I will put everything else aside and I'll do what I have to do. So I called Andrea and I said, listen, I'm not 100% sure because I still, I, I was skeptical about whether he would do it or not, right? This is a major fucking guy. I said, you know, Mark Music and Casey said he'll jump on board. And uh, Andrea said, if we can get him, uh, you know, we want him. I said, okay. So I called Tim. Tim was like, okay, get him in here. Tim talked to him. That was it. That was the dream team right there. That was it. And that's how how it got put together. So I brought him in then. And... um, you and basically then, negotiated the whole building oh, yeah. the team. No, no, I created the whole team. Yep. And um and then we fucking packed up and moved to San Diego. And uh, you know, and that's the first time I actually met him. First time I met well, you. You came to uh, yeah, when I was locked up in Balboa. Yeah. You showed up. First yeah. time I came and I'm locked up in a fucking room. And uh Tim and I went to see him. And that was the first time I, I actually met him. Uh, what was that like to go from getting, I mean, you got screwed so bad. I mean, you were running efficiently, running prison systems to being in the prison by getting screwed over by the government to go, what was it like to go and be able to jump on board all in, helping Eddie? Well, you, you know what it was? It, it, there's things that I could see in the case, and, and I do it now. I do the mm-hmm. same thing now, you know. With pipe hitter, there's there's a number of these cases. The Darby case, yeah. Um, you know Smith. Uh, you know there's a number of them. You know Eddie and Andrea will call me and say, "Take a look at this." I see things from my police, you know, hat. Yep. I see things, but a lot of it has to do. And and I, you know, I'm not here to bash attorneys, but I, I'll t- I'll tell you something. When you're sitting in his shoes. Or you're sitting in my shoes and you're standing in a fucking courtroom before a judge who's going to deprive you of your liberty and freedom. The one thing you have to have, that attorney that walks in the courtroom with you, that fucker's got to fight for you like he's fighting for your own life. Yep. And if he's, if he's not going to do that, then get rid of him. You know, people are afraid to, they're afraid to push their attorney. They don't know if the attorney's really doing what he should be or he's doing what he wants to do. What I do as an advisor to, as I did to Eddie, as I did to, you know, for others, I, I basically tell him, here's what your attorney's doing. Here's why he's doing it. And um, what you need to do right now is call your attorney and say, hey, dude, get the fuck off this thing right here and do this. You tell him what to do. If he has a justifiable reason why he's not doing it, then he'll tell you. Yep. But for the most part, you know, we had, we, Eddie and I, we, we had a great team. A great team. There were there were times Eddie, Eddie would get frustrated <laughs> and I'd get a fucking call at 1 o'clock in the morning. He'd go, dude, why are they doing this? And I'd have to explain to him, here's what they're doing. And, and if he thought if there was something more they should be doing... And I talked to him in the morning. I said, guys, listen, Eddie wants to focus on this. You know, 
we didn't really have a, not, a lot of negative. There was no, no negative. Not, Our, not compared we, to what I had before. It was a complete 180. That, I would say there was like really no negatives. I mean, yeah. when you're going through. There's a lot of frustration. Yeah. When you're going through something like this. It's a like frustrating this, situation. The fucking stress and the frustration is beyond comprehension. For anybody that's for anybody that's never been through it, you don't get it. You don't understand it, right? Yeah. Um, when you've gone through it, I know what it's like to be sitting in that seat. You know, I was. I got to be very delicate here because this is an <laughs> ongoing thing right now. You know what it's like to be sitting in a fucking courtroom? You're sitting there with your attorney. And the prosecutor gets up and starts talking to the judge. And he says, we want to disqualify this attorney here, Carrick's attorney, because we spoke to his former attorney. And, um, and we believe there's a conflict. And I'm like, you spoke to who? who? What? Who'd you speak to? Mm-hmm. What about attorney-client privilege? What do you mean you spoke to my attorney? And my attorney I'm with through in the courtroom is like, the fuck are they talking about? Who did they talk to? I had that happen. So believe me when I tell you, you talk about stress and frustration, you know, 25, 25 years ago, as, as we were talking earlier, prosecutors... They would never let a witness step over the ethical line. Prosecutors would never let a witness get on the stand and lie. Today, that's all changed. You have prosecutors lying. You have prosecutors fabricating evidence. You have, if you you monitor, if you look at this shit that they've done to President Trump over the last four years, they've done shit that I would have bet my entire life savings on would have never happened. In fact, when it was happening, I was like, no, I, I, can't, I don't think so, dude. I, I can't. I don't believe that. I don't believe these major fucking U.S. attorneys, like major guys, I cannot believe they're, they're corrupt like that. They were. Yep. And it seems like it's only getting worse. Yeah, it's a... Uh... I mean, I was drinking through a fire hose when I was going through it, just watching. Because, you know, you grow up watching fucking movies, Law and Order, whatever, and you look at, like, if you go to court, you're like, okay, that's where the truth comes out. Like, that's where, you know, you swear under oath, and you're like, all right, bro, it was nothing like that. It was literally like watching the prosecutors lie on a daily basis, the judge just agreeing with them, being like, okay, and then watching the witnesses go up there and lie through their teeth. But I'll tell you what, like, what we – what we did that was right is we stuck to the truth. We stuck to the facts and we just combated them every single time. They'd say some bullshit lie and be like, what about this? How do you, you know they could not. So then they'd add more lies onto it. And before they knew it, it was like, you know, when they took the stand, it was just watching. You know what it's like, you know, you know what it's like for these fucking Navy. So these, you know, they were such sissies. They They would, they would get up there and they'd start telling a story. And Tim would get up and go, um, is this your phone number? This your this your text message, right? You just said, read it back. Read back what he just said. Um, that's yeah. not, is that the truth? Because which is a lie? Was your text message to this guy? Was that truth, or was this truth? What which one's the yeah. truth? And they'd sit there like dumbfounded. They get am- they get amnesia all of a sudden and be like, "Oh, I don't remember anything." Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you, 
as frustrating as that whole thing was, there were some. I look back on it now. There were some funny fucking moments, bro. Like, I was thinking. Uh, remember when we went and met the prosecutors? It was me, you, and Tim, and we took the whole. Uh, we met with the whole prosecution team. So it was those two. It was Chaz Black. I forget the other idiot's name, and then that Marine, yeah, uh, Jag. Yeah. So I had not like been in a room with these clowns at all yet. Like I just saw them in the courtroom, and you know they can not make eye contact with me when I go in there and act like they're doing something. But we, Tim took us down there, and I'll tell you what, like he had the three of them there, and you could like cut the room with a knife with how <laughs> awkward these dudes were, and just they were scared. They were scared out of Shit their minds. Scared. Me and Bernie were just staring at them. As Tim is just grilling them, like, how are you guys still going forward with this? How are you know? And I remember the Marine. I'll never forget this. That Marine, he's a little, you know, short little pudgy dude. He, uh, he was sitting there just looking like completely like scared. And Tim's like, "What?" He's like, "Do you have a problem? What's what's going on?" He's like, "I I have a problem with this whole thing right now." <laughs> <laughs> I remember just laughing. It made me feel so good because I'm like, "Dude, what a bunch of punks, man!" These these dudes were. I mean, I th- there was for me there were a couple great moments. The one one of the greatest moments was when they put the tracking beacon on our fucking emails. Oh, yeah. You know, they were they were basically, they were eavesdropping on the legal defense team. And we saw the beacon, and Tim called the prosecutor, and he goes, hey, how you doing? Good. <laughs> um, l- let me ask you a question. I just got, I saw, I saw your email here. Um, are you eavesdropping on us? Click. The fucking dude hung up. Yep. He just hung up. He didn't even respond. And we knew then what they were doing. And the second, I think the second, this was the biggest part of the whole trial. And I'm sure you've heard all this, but the biggest part of the trial was when Corey Scott was on the stand. You know, we, I, and me and Mark Mukasey had interviewed Corey Scott um, before the trial. We interviewed him, and we talked him through the days uh, of the, you know, the terrorist death, right? And we said, and he's talking minute by minute, and I did this, and Eddie did that, and this guy did this, and this guy did this. And all of a sudden, he says, and, and, uh, and I was there with Eddie, and then Eddie was walking away, and, um, and, the, and the terrorist asphyxi- asphyxiated. And we're like, he asphyxiated? Mm-hmm. said, yeah. And Mark says, how did he asphyxiate? He goes, you mean he, he smothered, right? Yeah. Well, how'd that happen? And before he got to say it, his attorney said, hold on. He said, we're talking to the prosecutors at about, about immunity. He says, he can't say right now. He can't talk about it right now. So we, we said, okay. So we walked out. And I remember telling Mark, I said, you know, I, I think they must have hit him with some shit to slow his heart down, right? Some yep. fucking. Uh, it was, uh, well, whatever T.C. Byrne gave him. Yeah. Because yeah, he, he admitted, that's what, he's like, oh, I gave him something. Yeah. So I thought they must have hit him with too much. And it fucking slowed him down to where he stopped breathing, right? That's what it was. That's why they don't want to tell nobody. So that's what we thought. So he gets on the stand. He's the prosecutor's witness. No one knew what Corey was going to say. Like, no. like dude, that's, he here's did. the worst part. You're, yeah, yeah I, I know what you're going to say. The prosecutors put him on the stand. 
They had fucking talked him through this thing 15 times, right? Yeah. What they say, 11 interviews they had with him, right? Nobody ever asked him. Yeah. Nobody asked him the question. So he gets up there. When they interviewed him, they still didn't ask him the fucking question. They walked him right through the thing until the guy died. Where was Eddie? Eddie was there, and Eddie just walked away. Okay, thank you. Tim gets up. He goes, hold on, guy. Uh, listen, um, I want to take you back a little bit. He did this, 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 this. And you said, Chief Gallagher was walking away, right? Yeah. And you were still there. Yeah. And the the terrorist asphyxiated. You said asphyxiated, right? Yeah. Smothered, right? Yeah. And how'd that happen? <laughs> that fucking dude goes, well, I took my finger and I put it on the trach on the air tube and I held it there until he stopped. And I stopped the airflow until he stopped breathing. The whole fucking courtroom oh. was trying. You're trying to analyze it in your head like, what did he just say? What did he say? And all of a sudden, it came to all the fucking reporters in the back of the courtroom. Ran two out. rows. Yep. They jumped up and bolted out of the courtroom. <laughs> and I was like, out first. holy shit. And Tim looks at him. He goes, so you killed him? He goes, yeah. <laughs> he goes, he said, yeah, like... Like if if I went to Starbucks and said, "Do you want cream?" Yeah, yeah, I'll take cream. That's what it sounded like. And and, and Tim asked him. He says, "Well, why why did you do that?" And he honestly he looked at Tim like Tim was stupid. He says, "Because it, you know, if he didn't die, we were going to turn him back to the Iraqis. He would have been beaten and tortured and sodomized and you yeah, know, which we were listening to on a daily basis." Yeah. He goes. Yeah. He was going to die. All I did was help him. Oh, yeah. That shit was insane. It was a crazy, crazy So it was moment. just as a, much of a surprise to you in there. You, it was because you thought that they dude, were actually. Dude, I, I thought I knew the answer. Yeah. I actually thought I knew the answer. I was waiting for it. That wasn't the fucking answer I was yeah. waiting for. Yeah, I think that's, you know, everybody, oh, you had to have known. what he, I'm like, nobody no, knew. Nobody knew. Nobody, nobody knew what knew. he was going to say. We just went into court that day. And it came Which out is the way shocking it that the prosecutors didn't know. Yeah, even the prosecutors. And as didn't soon know. as he said it, the prosecutors like tried to get him off the stand. And the judge is like, "Hold it, he's your fucking witness. You put him up there. <laughs> like, what are you, what are you doing? Yeah. He's your witness." Corey played that prosecution like a gangster, and because they gave him full immunity, they were pretty much like, "Hey, you say whatever we want you to say, yeah, and so we can lock up Eddie, and that's so you can say whatever you want." And he was like, all right. And pretty much I did yeah. it. And that was it. I'll go one, one more story that I, and then I will move on past this. It's probably one, the funniest one when uh, General Abbas came. And yeah. he, so he shows up. It was like a couple weeks before trial because he flew in from Iraq. And uh, I think the Navy flew him in. Prosecutors flew him in. So they had this guy sleeping on the base, you know, and uh, we go meet him that day. At the, at the courthouse, and, you know, he's pissed. He's like, they got me locked up on this base. They won't let me leave. And he's like, I want to, you know, he wanted to go out to the strip clubs or do what, you know, whatever they were. Whatever he wanted, wanted to yeah. do. So we're like, okay, you know, we're and he's obviously frustrated. So it was, uh, we were telling him, we're like, well, who promised you that you could leave? Because he was like, they promised me I could leave. And he was like, Joe Orpinski. 
and he who was the head NCIS agent coming after uh. me at the time. So we're like, oh, Orpinski said you could leave. He's like, yeah. And we're like, yo, you should be able to leave. So we're like ramping him up. Like, dude, he lied to you. Like, you should make a, a fucking fuss out of this, you know? And so he's like, yeah. So he took the stand, did his piece. And then afterwards, he's throwing a fit. Remember? He's yeah. like, I want to talk to Orpinski. And this is like in the courtroom hallway. So it's real small. And he's like, I want to talk to Orpinski. Get him down here now. He's like screaming. And I remember just sitting there like, me and you were both sitting there just laughing. And uh, the prosecutors and some other freaking Navy officers that were on the prosecution, they were trying to calm him down. You know, they were like, okay, okay. Well, he's like, no, you get him now. He's like, you lied to me. And we're egging him on. They, I remember they walked up to I was like, yeah. I was like, you guys got a problem on your hands, huh? And they are like, yeah. I'm like, I know how to calm him down. They're like, oh, do you? I was like, yeah. I'm like, oh, can you? I was like, no. <laughs> I just walked away. <laughs> You know the best, the best part of the general. We knew, you know, he had made several statements that Eddie was innocent, Eddie shouldn't be prosecuted. This is nonsense. Eddie's the best of the best. I mean, this guy couldn't say enough about Eddie, and we were trying to find him because he the, worked with you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the prosecutor said, "We don't know where he is." What do you mean you don't know? You fucking interviewed him. We know you know. We can't find him. We don't know where he is. We don't this. We don't that. So I called a friend of mine. And I called a friend of mine that had contractors on the ground in Iraq. And I said, dude, I need to find this guy. This guy in this unit or was in this unit may have been promoted since. I'm not sure. But this is. I need to talk to this guy. Within 24 hours, man, yep. I get a fucking text message, and he goes, all right, call this number. Call the number right now. The general's going to answer. He's going to talk to you. I was like, what? He said, he's, gonna, he's waiting for you at that number. And I called him up, and I said, General, I work with Eddie Gallagher. I need you to come to the United States. Can you do it? In a minute, whatever. I'll come now. I want to go now. <laughs> yeah, I said okay, dude. When we went back to the fucking prosecutors and told them, they were pissed. They were pissed because they figured we'd never get him. Yeah, they didn't want him to take the stand, anyways. Um, yeah, yeah. there was a lot of crazy moments, and I'll tell you, like, you know, obviously, like you already said it, like we, the team that we had that you formed, you know, that got behind us, just like he said, they were all invested to like one hundred and ten percent and fighting for me and it came you know it came to fruition obviously when the verdict came out i mean everybody was in tears pretty much like it was a fight for everybody but i get you know compliments all the time especially from teammates and everything and they're like dude you like we can't imagine like you held it together like just your you the whole your whole time going through like you seem so stoic and like this and that and what people don't know is the reason I was able to hold it together like that was one, obviously Andrea, she's, she's my rock. She's just a savage, amazing, beautiful woman, but it's also a large part due to you to, mm -hmm. because the amount of advice that you gave me during that whole time. And I, I mean, I didn't know what I was going through. You know, sure. I was like, Bernie, <laughs> we'd be coming out of court, you know, cause the news and everything would be out there. He'd be like, Hey, take your glasses off. Stuff, I put oh, no, on? dude, I would fucking line them up. We'd be inside. We'd be getting ready to come out from the court. And I'd say, okay, 
All right, here's the lineup. Tim's coming out. Mark's going to be behind him. Eddie, you're next. Take them fucking sunglasses off. <laughs> Take the sunglasses off. Keep your hat on. We walk outside, put your hat on. Andrea, you're behind him. Andrea, you're going to step over. Andrea was also, she was like my nuclear option because yeah, the nuclear button. I would have, I would get the guys all ready to speak and the lawyers would speak. Tim, Tim would do most of the speaking. And then I would say, look, we have to throw a zinger. You know, we have to make sure that, and, it, and sometimes it's bad for the lawyers to say it, right? The lawyers don't want to bad mouth the, pro, the prosecutor or the, or the judge or the command. So, <laughs> fucking Andrea had no problem bad mouthing anybody. <laughs> yeah. So I would get her and I'd say, okay, <laughs> when Tim stops talking, he's going to turn to you and he's going to say, like, casually, he's going to say, Andrea, you have anything? And you're going to step up. And you're going to do these three points. Boom, boom, boom. And I would give them to her. She would fucking annihilate them. It was so <laughs> oh, embarrassing. It yeah, was like. She's so good. But she was, she was perfect. I mean, she was perfect. And, uh, yeah, but I'd get them all lined up, walk outside, hit the press. It was good. Yeah, and the biggest piece of advice you gave me. You know, I mean, there was so many gems that you dropped on me that whole time. But I remember the day or the verdict came out, right? And then. I think we went back to court the next day because uh, I got charged with the picture or whatever. Right. And after that, you said to me, you were like, listen, like you are now a public figure. Like you can't pick your fucking nose. Like they are going to be. And I like, this is not something I even mm. thought of. I was like, bro, I'm done. Like I mean, I was even like, I'll go back to work, you know? And I said, no, was, no, you, you know, ain't going nowhere. Yeah. Dude. He was like, you are now in this realm. And I'll tell you what, that was a huge eye opener to hear. And then it served me well. Cause like that, I had to think in that those terms from that point on. And that's all due to you, you know, because of without that, I've been, you'd you have know, been out there fucking knows? partying. Yeah. And shit. <laughs> <laughs> be all fucked up. Yeah. Yeah. I said, no, those days are over. Yep. He goes, well, what, what do you mean? I said, it's over. I said, your life has changed. Your life has completely changed. You're never going to be the guy you were the day before you walked in that courtroom. It's just not going to happen. Yep. And, uh, yeah, it's been golden ever since. We started the foundation, and we're all still together. And yep. Bernie's still doing his thing with us. And, it, I mean, he's the go-to anytime we have an issue or a question or we're just like we don't, we're not unsure of something. We call yeah. Bernie just like we did before. And, yeah, it's been a uh, – love you, man. Dude, I tell you what, I, I have a lot of respect. I just, I mean – one, I, you played a key figure in saving my friends, you know, life and, and, and his family's, you know, uh, and that you're continue helping Pipe Pitter and helping these uh, just unjust cases. Because, yeah. um, man, and there's in, many of them out there. And yeah. doing it and with integrity, like you got guys that were willing to fight. I mean, it's all dirty, and you're doing it with integrity and truth. I mean, that's a, you have to have the experience that you guys have. Oh, yeah. So, we'll move on. Next to the next question, what are your thoughts on the indictment of a former president? It's a political persecution. Mm -hmm. Um, Look, you know, I I, I don't have to get into the history. I think everybody knows it. Um, You know, what they've tried to do to Trump since before... He was elected in 16, right? 
what they tried to do him from from the time they wanted to impeach him. They were talking impeachment before he was actually elected. They impeached him twice. They've had four or five additional investigations. Now they have these state investigations. You have these radical left-wing prosecutors like Alvin Bragg, who got a million dollars from Soros, Fannie Willis out of Fulton County, um, a number of them out there that <clears throat> there's they have one mission in life, and that mission is to stop him from running in 2024. That's that's all this is. That's what their their intent is to stop him from running. You know, I've known the president since the 90s. Um, I can tell you, uh, you know, they're making a fatal mistake. And the mistake is this guy compartmentalized, decompartmentalized. You know, the the one thing that, that it's, it, and Eddie can explain this or talk about it, and, and I can, anybody that's been in the position we have, when you're going through these things, you're fucking, you get brain fog, right? You get overwhelmed, you get frustrated, you get, you know, anxious. You, there's a thousand things running through your head, but you're, you're kind of tied up in it and you don't have to worry about nothing else because that's your thing, right? That's what's going on. Fucking Trump, as president, yeah. this guy had an impeachment going on, another one coming, four investigations, congressional investigations, and would walk into the Oval Office and say, okay, um, get the agriculture people in here. I want to talk about this. And uh, get the uh, get uh, customs in here. I want to talk about this. And, and I used to say, how the fuck can this guy function? Like, how can he compartmentalize to the point that the entire fucking world is against him, and yet he can still function and do the things he has to do on a daily basis. When I gotta, I gotta tell you, I've been through one of the most substantial crises in world history. It's hard. It's hard to have that much shit going on, and you focused on your personal life, or whatever the case may be. If they think that he's gonna stop fighting, or he's gonna back down, they got another thing coming. It's not happening. So it's going to be an interesting, uh, you know, an interesting battle. I am not a lawyer, but every fucking lawyer I talk to talks about the indictment like it's a joke. Yeah. Right? Um, they've taken something that wasn't a crime, trying to turn it into a crime, and they're using witnesses that are, you know, they're fucking criminals themselves, you know? Um, so we'll we'll see where it goes, but I have... I have an enormous amount of faith that the president is, he's just going to keep fighting and doing what he does. Yeah, as do I. I think that people underestimate him and just the, the strength that he has and his family has. I mean, we look at to them when we were going through ours as like an inspiration. Because I remember, you know, when you get, you get just like, you know, you get smeared in the media and all this shit's being said about you. You can be the toughest dude in the world. It's going to take a toll. Like, I don't give a shit. Who it takes are. a toll. It, listen. It takes a toll early on. It yeah. takes a toll early on. Because I remember when that shit was first going on, Andrea and Eddie would, like, be fucking panic-stricken. Somebody would write some shit, and they would, they would, like, oh, my God, we have to address this. We have to. Yep. And I used to tell them all the time. I said, dude, 
you know, here's the way I look at this. And, and Dick Grasso, who used to run the New York Stock Exchange, was a very famous guy in New York City. <clears throat> he used to tell me all the time when I would panic over what somebody was saying about me. He said, Byrne, it's the newspaper. He said, it's news this morning. It's sitting at the bottom of a fucking birdcage collecting shit in the morning. He said, relax. Yep. He goes, doesn't make any difference. Nobody gives a shit. He said, just relax. And eventually, you build skin that is thick as a fucking alligator because you realize you can't stop the lunatics. You can't stop them. There's nothing you can do to stop them. Let the lunatics talk all the shit they want. Focus on what you have to focus on. And that is what Trump does. Yep. And that's what guys like him, uh, Eddie, has to do. Because if you sit around and you worry about the shit that people say, you'll f- your whole fucking life gets consumed in that shit. Yep. And I tell people it's the same uh, premise, you know, when you got friends on social media or whatever, and they're like, oh, you know, p- the negative comments. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, who cares? You don't even know these people. Right. And it's going to be gone tomorrow. Yeah. Like, it doesn't matter. But, yeah, I guess you have to go through – the ring of fire to, to build, like you said, build that thick skin. Uh, yep. Well, hey, brother. I love you, man. Thank you for you coming too. out. Um, Thanks for it's been the an invite honor. to be here. Yeah, it's nice to you meet you. so much. I mean, I feel I could, I personally could spend like five hours oh, we just could. going into all your stories. You got to pay money for that. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it'll be on your Patreon. Yeah, I was a long time ago. Somebody, uh, you know, I, I've written a couple books and. I, uh, you know, Sylvester Stallone met with somebody. They wanted him to do a, a, a second Copland movie. And uh, and he told uh, the guy that was asking, he said, listen, he says, we shouldn't do a Copland. He said, get Bernie Carrick's book. He said, the only fucking problem is, he goes, this guy's like fucking Rambo, but he's real. He says, but it can't be like, it can't be like a movie. You got to do a documentary. Like it has to go on for a while. He goes, there's a whole lot yeah. of shit in there. Oh, there is. So, uh, but uh, I, I've had a great life, and, uh, you know, Eddie is uh, definitely a part of it. So, yeah. We'll continue it. Yeah. Thanks, Thank guys. you so much. Thank you. All Out. right. Out.